You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Welcome back to Herd Tell, Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for sticking with us. Going back overseas, another one of those great UK contributors we get from Young Voices. We're always thrilled to have them. Really excited to have this one. I've listened to her and read her stuff for a while, so it's fun to actually get to talk to her. Uh, Alice Watson Brown, how are you today? I'm really well. Thank you so much for having me on here. It's a privilege. Thrilled to have you. She is all over uh, UK media, but if you're an American, you may not be as familiar with her work. You're going to get a good heavy dose of her today, though. Uh, Just real quick, introduce yourself to the folks over here. You're young voices, so they know you're quality people just from that because we have you folks on so much. But tell them a little bit about yourself and your background. Uh, well, I'm 21, very nearly 22. I study politics with uh, data science at the University of Bristol, which is sort of like in the west of England. Uh, very rainy, but it's spring now, so it's pretty pretty beautiful here. Um, and I was born and raised in London, so I'm a city gal, uh, you know, um, and yeah, moved to another city because I can't be out of it. <laughs> um and yeah, so I'm here and I've been with Young Voices since August last year. So that was when I was enrolled in the program and I've just thoroughly enjoyed it. I've uh, done writing, done broadcasting. So and it's just been great to do alongside my university study. And let's start right there with London, because London has really become the center to what we would call the B story to the Ukraine-Russia conflict. You've lived there. You're familiar with London. For the American audience, there's been a long known, it was one of those things where everybody knew, but now they really know, uh, the absolute river of Russian money that goes through the UK, specifically London, which is, of course, one of the financial hubs of all the world. But it's really been brought to the forefront since Russia invaded Ukraine. How is that playing? Because there does seem to be kind of a little bit of a groundswell here to actually do something about all this. Some of it's dirty money, some of it's laundered money that's been made respectable. 
but it's very much in the mindset of the people in the UK right now of, hey, it's time to finally do something about this thing that everybody knew about, but they kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudged at it, didn't they? Yeah, you're incredibly right about the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Everyone knew about it. Uh, if you know Harrods in London, obviously it's sort of a famous kind of tourist hub. Uh, if you walk through the place where it's in called Knightsbridge, uh, no houses, none of the mansions around there are owned by British people. It's all owned by Russians and uh, no one actually ever lives there. They're usually always empty and it's sort of polluted our democracy. London is what you could call the washing machine for Russia's dirty money. Um, and it's because we in Britain do not have a trade surplus on manufactured goods. So we relied on selling assets for foreign cash. We welcomed the investment and these Russians from, you could say the privatization uh, from the 1990s, they could buy these mansions um, and the government would lap up the money. And I think it's become so much more salient. Now people really, really know what's going on because it really hit home when uh, Roman Abramovich was sanctioned, who owns... Chelsea Football Club. And as you know, probably the UK, we love our football. Uh, it really struck a chord at the cultural heart of the UK, not just in, you know, world politics terms. Um, and it's not just that a rich owner of an esteemed football club is being reprimanded. It's affecting the jobs of all the normal regular people who work for the club, who are worried that they're not going to get their next paycheck. And it just reveals the intricacy and how much this dirty money, you could call it, has filtered down and affected the lives of everyday working Britons. And, well, Liz Truss, our foreign secretary, has issued some of the most harshest sanctions uh, we've ever seen. Um, and the banks of London now have been asked to give details of where the sanctioned individuals have moved their money to, to the Financial Conduct Authority, so we can really get a grip on how these sanctions uh, are affecting um, these oligarchs. So I guess it is not a, it's not a problem with an easy solution. We have to unpick it. Um, Boris Johnson today wrote an article in the Daily Telegraph uh, talking about how we need to move away from reliance on Russia. He didn't mention oligarch money, but I think he wrote it within the context that he had to say something about moving away from Russian investment, whether that was oil. Uh, he was pledging self-reliance on energy and, you know, in, in an optimistic bid uh, onto sort of nuclear and renewable sources. Um, and he just said the West had made a mistake to in 2014 to just... Uh, step aside while Russia annexed Crimea. Um, so there are going to be a lot of complexities, but I guess we just have to wait and see. I'm trying to think of a good comparison, talking to Alice Watson-Brown from Young Voices UK with us. Chelsea Football Club, it has a little bit more of a profile in America now because, of course, Christian Poselic plays for them. Um, yeah. So they, they're well-known, but... This would be like the owner of the Yankees being told that he can no longer be in the country or the New York Giants, a big time club, London's team. I know there's other teams. Let's not go down that road. But, you know, they put pride of London on the stadium for a reason. This this is a cultural big, big deal. But it also underlines the question. And you mentioned Boris Johnson. There was you don't get that kind of power without a lot of political considerations. 
how deep does this go? Does this go into the political sphere? Does this money get into politics? Does it go into parliament and office holders? Is it just the culture or is the fear and the investigations going to be, hey, they've actually got their hooks into our actual way of governing here? It's political as well, although that is, I suppose, less accessible. Everyone does have a notion that I suppose in the US lobbying is far more of a entity that's talked about but in the UK it occurs a lot as well um and MPs rely on lobbying money a lot and a lot of that can come from Russia and there have been you know Boris Johnson and most of the British political establishment have links with Russian personnel be it friends of Putin or just oligarchs in general and it has I suppose with all the media attention on Chelsea and the cultural factor, the political factor has not been as highlighted in the media as you'd perhaps think. And it could just be because they're not trying to feed into the, you know, political trust deficit that has just infiltrated the entirety of, of the UK and the US as well. I, I, from what I can tell, but we'll have to see. I mean, the UK haven't exactly been passive um, on their actions against Russia. We raised, I think, around £120 million in five days to help Ukraine. So we are definitely making political stances against Putin. But when it comes to revealing and underlying the intricate links of the British political elite, that's something that's never get, ever going to come out. We <laughs> Because there are so many. And there's also comes the question of, especially with the sports thing and with politicians and their ties with questionable political entities such as Saudi Arabia or China, um, where do we draw the line? What, which country go, what, what do we class as going too far when it comes to human rights abuses and territorial integrity? Because we have other football clubs in the UK, which are owned by uh, Saudi Arabia. So how, how do we compromise with that? But I suppose that Boris Johnson, this war for him could be his savior. You were saying earlier that, um, you know, what, how two months can change things. I mean, the polling, his polling approvals have not gone up, but uh, he has... Um, just about recovered from the nadir of party gate which i don't know if if that is well known in the us but we were under national lockdown from may 2020 um you could be fined for sitting on a park bench having a coffee if your coffee cup was empty and you were just sitting down there for too long and you could be fined for just you know walking on the street uh with alcohol after 10 p.m if you were a student um so it was really heavy rules. And it turns out that all that time in the heart of our supposed democracy, cabinet ministers and the prime minister and himself were partying into the early hours with booze and, you know, just flouting and disrespecting the civic duty that the British people took upon themselves to protect each other. So Labour is still currently, the opposition are still currently pulling ahead, but Boris Johnson is not no longer projected to lose his constituency. Um, so there is some positive there for him. And he is a sort of prided himself on being a sort of Churchill figure, especially when it came to advocating this wartime spirit in the time of COVID. 
so this could be the making of him. I suppose he wants to leave office without a tarnished legacy. And we've introduced these. It's this um, campaign. It's called Home for Ukraine in the UK, where um, if a UK citizen signs up and says they want to take in refugees, they get paid £350 a month by the government. Uh, it opened last night, so Monday evening. Um, and over 100,000 UK citizens have applied. We we're pretty, I would say that it's given us revitalized some sense of humanity after complaining about mask wearing and schools opening for two years. So this could perhaps save him. Yeah, a little bit of rally around the flag kind of stuff with this. Talk yes. about Alice Watson Brown. Uh, one more quick thing on on this. We just went through a couple of years, of course, with Russia, 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 and Donald Trump here, and you get pictures of untoward Russian figures with all kinds of folks. UK's got that problem right now. Boris Johnson is one of them. You got this Yevgeny Ledbed gentleman. <laughs> He's yeah. with Prince William. He's with Boris Johnson. Pretty much you name the who's who, even Judy Dench and Ian McKellen, people who would know actors here in America. The who's who of British society, they got pictures with this guy. You know, how is this going to be one of those things where it's it's guilt by association or is this just going to be a lot of innuendo and then it kind of fades away as the crisis fades? How do you think it plays out? I think from the public point of view, we we are supposedly more concerned with refugees at the minute. We're more concerned about how the government are going to help those people who are now fleeing from a war-torn country. From my perspective, we know our government is associated with corrupt people and corrupt regimes. For us, that's nothing new. I know that's a very sad thing to say, probably as a 21-year-old living in a liberal democracy, but to me, there's only so much you can be outraged at. And, you know, as long as I don't feel in everyday life that I'm benefiting off the backbone of these kind of regimes, which I probably am, you can't really take action against it. But there will, obviously, there is this always this going to be sense of moral outrage on Twitter um, but surprisingly, all MPs have been quiet. They're not ousting each other because they're all involved. So it really is just trial by jury of the public when it comes to the next election. Yeah. Talking to Alice Watson Brown, thrilled to have her a UK contributor. We're going to take a quick break. We come back uh, more UK perspective on Ukraine and Russia. How Zelensky's playing there. He spoke to their parliament last week. Also, uh, she just did a radio hit about the humanity of the West when it comes to Ukraine. We're going to get into that with her more with Alice Watson Brown right after this. Welcome back to Hurt Dell, Andrew Donson. Thanks for sticking with us. Continuing our conversation from over yonder uh, instead of my beloved up yonder, Alice Watson Brown. Okay, Zelensky, of course, has become kind of the figure of Ukraine, the leader of Ukraine. You talked about uh, Boris Johnson wanting to be a Churchillian figure, which is probably shooting a little high, and you may not want to remind him what happened to Churchill as soon as the war was over electorally. But Zelensky, we really do seem to, at least in the PR side of things, have one going here. This is kind of rare. He spoke to Parliament, which is something that does not happen a whole lot. Uh, what's the perception there in the UK? We talked about there's a lot of rally around the flag. I imagine he's immensely popular and very inspiring to the British people, especially when it comes to taking in these refugees, knowing that this man is leading their country. 
Yeah, so the address to our parliament, um, there's there are very few instances where MPs show any sign of really being human um, to the media, but our um, defence secretary, Ben Wallace, was um, in tears. He was fighting back tears. Uh, Zelensky's address, uh, it was heart-wrenching. He was pulling on the heartstrings of British culture and British history. He referenced Shakespeare, Churchill, our preparation against Nazi invasion to drag us into his worldview. And he did it extremely effectively. He, as you said, has got the PR side of it incredibly, you know, fine-tuned for his audience. Um, And he nobly thanked us for our help. Um, And I think despite all the criticism that has come from certain facets of our society, notably, you know, the political opposition for saying that we we aren't doing enough, um, especially, you know, people compare our role in it to the European unions, but actually we launched Operation Orbiton um, after the annexation of Crimea and we went over and trained up the Ukrainian army, gave them NLO missiles um, and, the EU gained up, gave nothing. Our NATO spending has been up to requirement. Germany's hasn't. And yeah, I think it it makes you take a step back and think about that this could be what brings the West together after a time of such division, political, social, and cultural division about things that when you think, when you look at Ukraine, don't really matter. You know, like, why are you putting masks on kids because of a virus that isn't going to kill them when there are kids across the world who whose home have been destroyed, who are victims of a violation of the Geneva Conventions, that everything that we fought for in our international institutions? Yeah, I think Zelensky is a sort of figurehead for us. Um, we and we'd hope that Boris Johnson will mobilize that and and pursue that in in political currency on the world stage is since we're talking about parliament things don't happen in a vacuum parliament one of the most extraordinary and and i'm one of those people i watch pmqs every wednesday i keep up with uk politics pretty well i i never thought i would live to see parliament denounce america like they did during the afghanistan crisis when that fell apart and you have you know members of parliament you know openly talking down about their relationship with america and the american president because of how that happened is that aftertaste still there in parliament and in the culture of that that was not a good moment for us but then you have this rally around the flag moment for ukraine that's got to be a small part of this as well because like you said it's like the COVID stuff I think people just had a lot of bad news and want to see something good and hear some like, hey, we helped train this military that's really, you know, given the Russians all they can handle here, despite all the odds. Yeah, I think after Afghanistan that we've had this sort of persistent hangover from Iraq and Tony Blair um, and Afghanistan was a shock to everyone. I think um, we did not have any premonition that it would happen as quickly as it did. I, I don't know if that's a fault from the media or generally because people had limited information about what was going on from the ground. I think Parliament now, when it comes to the US, know that there has to be unity when it comes to Ukraine. And Parliament's relationship with the US has, I don't think it was as fractured as people like to make out under President Trump. 
Uh, obviously, there was a lot of moral opposition when he decided to come to the UK, but ultimately we we wanted to work with him because you guys are obviously still a, <laughs> should be our friends, right? Um, but I think there are a lot of people, especially on the right, who supported Boris Johnson as the sort of Brexit champion, regaining back our sovereignty and things like that, um, who are, there's bittersweet, this taste of rallying around the flag, as you'd put it, um, because we've lived in sort of distaste for his these draconian measures that a libertarian prime minister has championed and lied to us about. And now we suddenly have to support him again in something that we we don't know if NATO was responsible for. But I think Afghanistan, we haven't heard much about it. We made mistakes when it came to taking in refugees. Uh, we lost files, we lost data, we lost track of people. Um, it did feel like we just dropped sticks and left and abandoned people and didn't didn't inform anyone about it. But hopefully, you know, not in a cynical way, we will be able to redeem ourselves on Ukraine and the and it, you know, the hearts of the British people are open. Yeah, the the stat of them, you know, 100,000 people offering to take in refugees is an amazingly great story. Britain, of course, has a long history of taking in people, not, notwithstanding the last few years and fussing with France about the channel and things like this. England has a long history of doing these sorts of things. Broadly speaking, though, um, there's there's been this sort of thing of, OK, maybe the UK is trying to find their place in the world because, you know, obviously the British Empire is no more we're past the Cold War stuff, and then you have the Brexit stuff that just drug on for years after years after years. Is it the feeling now of like, okay, we're not sure what's next with our relationship with Europe, but this aggression from Putin, this this obvious clear and present danger to the Western world order, does this seem like it's clarified it of, okay, we need to put the Brexit stuff behind us. We have to figure out what our relationship with wider Europe is, and we need to move forward, and this is what it's going to look like. It's probably not completely a thought, but it seems like maybe it's been clarified a little bit the last few weeks. Yeah, people are tired of Brexit being in the media. They're, they're tired of it. Uh, people still poll, and supposedly the latest poll is that 49% of British people still think it was wrong to leave. Um, I don't know how much I trust those polls. They don't release the questions that they ask the public. So, But um, I think with our relationship with the European Union... In the context of Ukraine, the UK probably would have acted in the interests of NATO rather than the EU as a foreign policy body anyway. And we we were able to introduce our sanctions, but we just avoided and surpassed the intergovernmental processes of the EU, which are incredibly complicated. And I think despite our spats with migrant over migrants and economic migrants, mainly with Macron, we have to show unity. We can't be petty and talk about technocratic clauses of Brexit and where people can fish. That's not what politicians are there for. This is what these institutions and these alliances were made for, is to stand up to threat and balance power. Because Putin sees this as a zero-sum game. And if we retreat because we are fractured over a political decision that occurred in 2016, how weak are we? We have there will be no moral backbone if that's what our politicians, you know, our politicians do. 
And I think it would be even an even graver disappointment if that is what prevented us from taking coherent action. So I think hopefully the Brexit debate is over um, when it comes to the bitterness, the, the sole bitterness that encompassed people and the division, the hatred. I, I mean, I, it was my first kind of first kind of years of becoming politically mature, I'd guess. I first Brexit and then COVID. And each of them was, I'm for and against this. And if you don't agree with me, you are X and you are Y and you don't have any heart or any soul. And the it's strange. I don't know if this happened with America and Trump, you voting Republican in 2016 or but the hatred that ensued against people who had voted leave was unprecedented. And it I was, you know, young and I I would have voted leave if I was able to vote. I was only 16 at the time. Um, but I, I couldn't, I felt scared to talk to my friends about it. But now we can talk about it loosely because we know we have way bigger problems in the world and that's Ukraine. So hopefully it'll bring, it'll just ease the kind of social tensions. Yeah. Talking to Alice Watson Brown, uh, you raise a good point. So let me just kind of wrap this up uh, in that way. Then uh, you talk about generational thing. Your generation is too young to remember the Cold War, although you've obviously it shaped a lot of the world that you grew up in. Uh, things like Brexit, things like this Russian invasion now, these are probably going to be generational defining things for your generation's politics going forward in the UK and probably Europe's as well. We, we've already seen in Poland and countries like, you know, they got the border right there. They're dealing with this stuff. How do you think that plays out as they look forward? Because we were kind of all assuming that the COVID stuff might be a generation shaping thing, but this may actually kind of eclipse some of that. How do you see that going forward and how it's going to play with that rising generation of, you know, post-college starting to become professionals and how they see the world? Well, there is a sort of running joke on my generation that we're really bored of living through paramount historical events. <laughs> We've had huge constitutional change, a global pandemic, and possibly on the brink of World War Three. Um, to me, what is interesting is how the global liberal order changes and how it will develop. Um, and I possibly see our generation as being the generation that marks the development of a multiplex world, uh, wherein it's not necessarily defined by hegemony or your balance of power, but a multitude of globalized systems, be it trade, finance, non-government organizations, multinational companies, uh, all forming different alliances for different purposes rather than just the United Nations or, you know, the ICC or, you know, and I think that is a good thing, but also terrifying because when it comes to multinational corporations like Amazon or big tech, none of that is democratically accountable so that means it's all self-reliance. It's all self-protection. It's all finding about how you can keep as much control over your own life as possible because our lives are so commodified. We're all online now. Every part of us is sellable and usable to, for a profit to an advertising company. And I think rather than looking at it as how, what are we the generation of, of data or are we the generation of war and pandemics? 
I'm I'm leaning towards the former. Mm. That's my opinion. Great, great answer to an impossible question to answer. So good job on that. Uh, Alice Watson Brown, one last thing to kind of round this back to where we started. The viewpoint of the UK and of Europe a little more broadly, what's the viewpoint over there of America's leadership? We talk, you know, we're obsessed with ourselves. Let's just call it what it is because we think the whole world revolves around us. Uh, But what does Europe and the UK specifically, how do they see America in this crisis? Do they see us as followers? Do they see us as leaders? Do they see us indifferent? How is the current American leadership playing during this crisis in Ukraine? Well, I don't know. Uh, firstly, I don't think there's anything wrong with American exceptionalism. It's it's a very interesting phenom- phenomenon that is a, it's a very specific form of patriotism, which I'm interested in. Um, but I my answer to that question, it really depends if you think that Trump would have been better in this situation or Biden. Personally, um, I think Donald Trump would have been slightly better because he could have mobilized some of the more controversial allies that Biden wouldn't want to go near with a 10 foot barge pole like Saudi Arabia, for example. There are reports that Saudi aren't even answering Biden's calls. I had that on the radio. Um, I think from our perspective, we need a leader and this is America's perfect chance to exercise itself as not only a a hard power when it comes to sanctions or even, you know, emphasizing the mutually assured destruction uh, concept that was so key in the Cold War, Um, but also as a a normative power, a power of promotion of democracy and freedom. Um, But a lot of us now don't necessarily look to America as this beacon of freedom and hope. I think exposed by the sheer impact that COVID had, not at a political level, but at the health level of, 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 US, of US people. People are very sick in Western countries. And I think the US is a kind of powder keg of that, be it from processed food or from bad governments, healthcare inequalities. We're not necessarily looking there domestically, but we, we would feel incredibly insecure without America with us on the world stage. Yeah, we do too. Uh, we call it the special relationship for a reason. It has its ups and downs, but we definitely want to continue to provide that with our friends at the UK. You're one of them, Alice Watson Brown. So thrilled for the conversation today. I really appreciate it. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you on social media. I know you appear on uh, British media, which a lot of us have been watching a lot more of lately because our network news don't do great with international affairs. Let folks know where they can follow you and your social media so they can keep up with what you got going on. Yeah, uh, I'm just on Twitter at Alice Watson Brown, A-L-Y-S Watson Brown, all one word. And uh, yeah, I post some great content when I can be bothered. (laughs) So give me a follow. Another (laughs) one of our great uh, Young Voices contributors. You can find her stuff at youngvoices.org. Alison Watson Brown, thank you so much. We will definitely have you back soon and appreciate the time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Appreciate it. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones 
who get it done.